0: I just had a great interview with a good friend of mine called Sidney Mohid. Sid is the worship pastor, creative director for the mighty JPCC Church in Jakarta, Indonesia. I love that church. Pastor Jeffrey Rashmat is one of my favorite people in the world, as is Sid. And we spoke about Sid's journey uh, to date in his life and dug into some of the aspects of that fascinating Uh, his creative process. Uh, Sid is a prolific singer, songwriter, music producer uh, for the church albums that he does and his own projects. Uh, He's an interesting guy. We dug into um, some of his interests outside the church, some of the hobbies that he has that keep him flourishing uh, and grounded as a person. His love of comics and video games. Uh, We spoke about some of the challenges we both feel the church face in reaching the emerging generation and some of the challenges of the emerging generation too with regard to faith and spirituality and so on. Uh, I think you're going to love this interview. I hope you do. I'd love you to subscribe to my podcast channel. I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Before you get started on today's podcast with Paul Scanlon, we just wanted to let you know that he now has a free course available to you. If you head over to paulscanlin.com forward slash free course, you'll be able to sign up to his video series called The Five Behaviors of Successful People. We hope that this course adds value to your life. Now enjoy the podcast. Pluses and minuses, Sid, on the lockdown, what have you felt about it in terms of things you've missed, things you haven't missed and so on? Has it been predictable for you, how it's affected you or not?
1: I'm naturally an introvert as you probably know, so this, yeah, Yeah. yeah, this have been a blessing in disguise for me. I mean, as, as someone who uh, just love being by himself and has no problem being by himself uh, in what I do, I think this is, this is all right. You know, there are some things that I miss, you know, just getting coffee in my, my, my favorite coffee shops or things like that. But other than that, uh, things have just shifted geographically. I mean, from the studio in my office to studio here. And this, this, this is actually my children's study room that I just kind of converted temporarily oh, okay. as as my as my little studio. So, yeah. I mean, uh, but one thing that that <clears throat> pandemic have shown us, and and even in our family, I, I was talking about this that it really filters out all the non-essential things in life. Right. Uh, that it just kind of focuses on what's the priority. That at the end of right. the day, what this lockdown and quarantine season have taught us is that you know, there, there's so many fillers in our lives, you know, to keep <clears throat> us occupied, to keep us interested about life when actually they're not that important. They're not that essential. You can have everything you have here already at home. And uh, it's been... Sean, yeah. do
0: you think people wired like you and i said that are more uh introvert um obviously all the fillers we never relied on them anyway to be happy and to uh, to function well and to be fruitful in what we do but people yeah. that are wired more for uh to be extrovert or are more like social animals party people <laughs> and so on and so on and and recharge through social settings and we don't. Mm. How are they finding all this, you think?
1: <clears throat> my wife is the exact opposite of me. There she you go, okay. Loves, she loves going out, she loves being with friends. So that's one of the things that early on she was very stressed out about, was actually, when can I go and hang out with my friends? Right. You know, sure. just with the girls you know, doing things in the mall and things like that. i you've, you've been to Jakarta where yep. the mall is everything. Right. So, Yeah. For, for them, this is a big deal. I mean, this, this, uh, and she was always kind of like upset. It's like, how come you're not stressed out? <laughs> you know, how come you're not, you're not upset in this season? I'm like, I'm, I'm actually happy. This is something that I've prayed for for a long time. You know, God, wow. can I just stay home a bit more, you know, instead of traveling just like you are. And, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it's I, I think it depends on the spectrum of the things that kind of lifts you up. And for my wife is being with friends and uh, hanging out. Uh, so for them, it, it, it is a big deal.
0: Freedom's a strange thing, isn't it? Because the things I miss are the things I don't miss. It's So it comes down to, it's not having the option, I suppose, that is the frustrating thing. I don't have the option to travel or to go anywhere and yet I'm loving not going anywhere. Right. And I think that must be part of the complexity for people that finish up in jail or people that lose their freedom at some point in life right. after they've had options. I think it's that psychologically is the torment of long-term incarceration in any form. Don't you think it's just it's not that if you, it's like, you don't know what you had till you've not got it, you know, kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I absolutely agree. It's just the the fact that we don't have that option yeah. Yeah. go anywhere. That's I think that's the frustration, even for introvert people like us. You know, right. that that there's not that much. I mean, the, right. but you have um, you know the things that interest you, wh- whether it's for me, it's always music. For me, it's always the studio has always been uh, an interesting part of my life where I, I get that's that's where my gasoline comes you know it, it lifts me up it sparks me up so I have that option and and for me I'm just gonna jump into this and uh and be okay with it
0: what is it about what you do said you know in light of what you just said what is it about what you do that you do feel feels you and lights you up because that seems to me that you are alluding to the enjoyment of the process of what you do rather than the outcome of what you do. In other words, you'll, you'll write a song and perform the song, but almost that's less important than your passion for the process that leads towards that. Would that be fair to say about your creative flow? Very.
1: very. And I've learned this. I mean, again, uh, I've been doing this now 30 years. I'm I'm 47 this year. So I started this journey of music and, and praise and worship you know, at the age of 17, 30 oh. years. Ago. So I've been doing this for a long time. I've, I've produced I've, countless albums. So, and I realized along the way, and I think halfway through it, that I actually enjoy the process of making an album mm. much more than actually having the product in my hand or even going on, on tour. Maybe mm. that's the introvert side of me speaking that, that I, I kind of dread, you know, having to fly, bringing all the gears, and and quote unquote performing in front of people, because I like this process even more. Just being in, you know, in front of my keyboard or guitar and writing, and 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 I think what it is is just that discovery, kind of thing. You know, as creatives, that's what we always long for, and that's what we always strive for to understand ourselves with, with each song that we create, with each dance that we choreograph or or writings that we we understand more about ourselves. And I think that's why it always interests me with every piece of music, with every song that I've written in the past thirty years. I've gained more understanding about myself and the God who created me. And 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 I think that's the joy of it, you know. I think the loving of the process has made me more
0: aware of the need to say to the emerging generation who are wondering how they find their how they find their sweet spot their passion their gift their calling, and usually that 's often been answered with regard to them paying attention to who's getting great results in some area and they want to have that for their own lives so they tend to pursue outcomes and results rather than start with. What do you love to do? What, right. what process do you love? How are you wired as a person? And no one ever told me that as a younger person, sure. that, do you, that my love of study, my love of books, my love of learning, like you talked about for you, no one said to me that that counted for anything because that, that couldn't possibly pay the bills or be enough to live from, that that would always only ever be a hobby. So for years I felt I was separated from the essential nature of the process. I was kept away from it by doing my job and raising my family and almost this process that I was drawn to magnetically was seen as an interference.
1: Right. Well, especially, you know, Asians, Asian family, especially where the things that we do is, when it comes to art, when it comes to, dance or performing arts whether it's music or uh, uh, painting drawing and things like that are are kind of frowned upon in the asian culture because you know you're not you're not what are you going to do with the rest of your lives doing that art you know it's it's always towards you got to be a businessman you, you got to be a, a an entrepreneur or any something like that 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 produces money and income and i think that's the generation uh, that, that before us, that, that taught us that, that at the end of the day, it's, it's always about, can it feed your family? Can it, can it be, are you going to be financially stable doing what you do? And I think that's why the soul is being overlooked, you know, as long as you do things with your mind being, you know, that's why we are always so bombarded with, uh, uh, Having having that success in school in college, because you know as long as your mind is smart as as long as you're the smartest in the family doesn't really matter what your soul needs and lack and mm-hmm. but it's hurting a lot of people uh, hurting a lot of people in my age in my age group that uh, you know by now they're in their forties or you know early fifties and and they're like, I wish I could have pursued my passion when I was at an early age, instead of doing what my family uh, told me to do. And, and I see a lot of that.
0: When I first came to Jakarta years ago, I came straight after I'd been in Singapore. And I think I mm. spoke to you, or certainly to the group of your business people I was with, contrasting Singapore to Jakarta, just as a first time comparison. Mm. And, and, and the sense of uniformity and compliance, as you know, in the Singaporean culture, um, and when I first landed at Jakarta Airport, it felt like a coup was taking place. It was it was loud. It was chaotic. There seemed to be no organisation uh, <laughs> compared to the c- compared to the clinical nature of the behaviour in Singapore. And yeah. then when then when your driver from JPCC picked us up and drove us into town to the hotel. Um, suddenly all the three, four lane freeway came down to one or two and everything just gridlocked. And I said to the driver, you know, is there a problem? Is there a road accident? And uh, he said, no, uh, you'll see what the problem is in a moment. And what happened was as we got further down the, the freeway, um, it had started to rain and everybody on motorcycles had stopped under bridges. Yeah. And it yep. gridlocked the whole city. And there were even cops on the motorcycles under the bridges. But in yep. Singapore, as you know, they'd all be in jail. And nobody cared in, in Indonesia. And I asked one of your entrepreneurs about this. And he said to me, I think the difference between here and Singapore is that in business, we would not choose a Singaporean for anything beyond middle management because of their tendency to be compliant and want to be told what to do. We're looking for people with initiative. And he felt that the culture of Indonesia had fostered in them from childhood, this sense of self-sufficiency because you don't know whether tomorrow you'll be alive because of the numerous uh, fires or floods or earthquakes, as well as terrorism and so on and so on. He spoke about in more recent years. Yeah. So this sense of self-sufficiency and the government doesn't provide for your uh, families in the same way singaporean government does in terms of welfare system i say all that to say do you think that has handed you the entrepreneurial flair that i know you also have seen
1: absolutely i mean uh uh i i guess for me there's there's a bit of a difference i i grew up in the states i i everything's okay I was a right boy moved to so i i do have that western mindset that kind of helped me along the way as well of you know being able to to speak my own thoughts you know where especially in indonesia that's not something that's being encouraged so but yeah i really do believe that it's there's a big difference uh singaporean were british colonies right so so i think the the way the british have raised up the generation during time was very different than Indonesia, which was colonized by the Dutch, you know, and uh, the Dutch were not very keen on educating the the indigenous people of of our nation. So for Mm. the longest time, we were not as smart or intellectual as some of the, the, the British colonies, you know? So I think that's our advantage, you know, that we were, always looked at as, as the underdogs in the Southeast Asian countries, uh, back from the fifties, sixties, seventies. But because of that, which, uh, it just kind of push our people to literally say, we got nothing to lose. Like we absolutely have nothing to lose. Uh, If no one's going to care for us or think about the future of our family or, or our livelihood, we're just going to have to fight our own way. And I really do see a lot of that in the Indonesian, especially in the businessman and creative <clears throat> side of things where <clears throat> the people, most of the, the, uh, amazing creative people that I learn and, 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 and get to know they're mostly self-taught. They're mostly self-taught. They never go overseas to study. They, they, uh, you know, everything they know is self-taught and and i love that about our people uh it's just that grit it's that perseverance of again i got nothing to lose i just i'm doing this for my own and i'm doing this for the future so yeah
0: how old were you when you went to uh, jakarta from america
1: i was 22 this was back in 1995 so moved to america back in the early 80s i was i was still in uh uh, elementary school as the americans would say it and uh, moved back to indonesia when i was 22 so wow. i was at that right age of yeah uh, of being obnoxious and think that he could he could uh, i could change the world with what i know from america but at the same time i i was i was young enough to learn that i don't know everything so i've
0: always felt i've always felt about you said that you have a unusual sense of confidence and I don't mean confidence in what you do or stage confidence Mm. but I mean as a person and now I'm hearing about your beginnings in America which of course is a very confident sort of culture there do you feel that that's been part of the confidence that you now have in your midlife because your beginnings in America
1: well when, when we moved to America, it was just my mom and, and two sisters and me. So the four of us moved because of the divorce. So uh, my parents divorced in the early eighties, which Southeast Asia, I mean, especially Indonesia, uh, it was unheard of divorce. Right. I, I was in third grade or fourth grade and uh, in, in my whole entire school, I, I was the only boy with divorced parents. Mm. And that was one of the reasons, I think, if not the main reasons why my mom, our mom decided to, to move to America and just start over and start from the beginning. And, and it wasn't like, it was pretty much like an immigrant story where where literally we had nothing and we had to work from the ground up. Um, But I think it does. I mean, growing up there as a, as a teenager, learning the do's and don'ts, uh, trying to be street smart because, you know, we, we were raised not in a very good neighborhood
0: mm-hmm. and,
1: uh, it, it did gave me that confidence of and, and being the only man in the family at that time. Right. Uh, so I had to work from a very early age, uh, earn my own money, uh, supported my own self, uh, paid my own college wow. back during the day. So, so it gave me that sense of, all right, I can do this. I can do this life thing. And then uh, when God told me to, to go to Indonesia at the age of 22, you know, being naively thinking that I'm, I'm here to save Indonesia, I'm here to change praise and worship, and all that kind of stuff. And then later on, I found out that that wasn't the case.
0: When you say God told you, what do you mean by that? How do ah. you know God told you something? How, how do you how do you locate that in your life and journey? What? when you use that phrase about things in your life and you don't use it about other things in your life, what's the difference?
1: Yeah, I I knew when I said that, I was like, ah, okay, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, No, no, you should have said that. I'm just,
0: I'm I'm picking you up on it because I think in the church world, we use that phrase a lot and no one ever asks anybody, what do you mean? And I think our listeners that are not just church people, our listeners would be helped by me and you breaking that down a wee bit as to what do you mean by that? Because I think it's incumbent on us when we use that phrase to be able to say what that means as if we're explaining it to a stranger.
1: Right. <laughs> so the way I would explain it to people <clears throat> who don't go to church and don't know the lingo, which <clears throat> that's why I shouldn't have said that because that's a very no, no. Christianese lingo. God That's no, good. English. I'm glad it came up. It's good. Uh, uh, I, If I'm honest, in the in the 47 years of my life, I've never yeah. heard an audible voice of God. I've never heard that God would say, wake me up in the middle of the night, Sydney, you know, with that echo and Mm. delay. I I never have that. But as I said, I've, I've been very good in terms of listening instinctively Mm. to whatever that sound is, whether, Mm. you know, in the spirituality, whether it's, 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 you know, that inner voice, but I really do believe that it's different. So what it, what happened was I had several people that I really respected in my life uh spoke to me and said that hey you know I was I was praying and 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 this is the word that I got for you mm-hmm. and and I remember this was back in 1995 end of 1994 I had people that I really respected some of my mentors would come up to me and said I don't know why but God said Indonesia and I'm like and and you have to understand that growing up in America, I thought I was gonna, I I, I was gonna stay in America for the rest of my life. You know, I was, I was, I was already in that mindset and season of my life. So when, when that man told me that, uh, God wants you to go to Indonesia or think about Indonesia, I'm like, no, get away from me. This must not be from the Lord, you know, because Mm. I really believe that I'm going to stay in America for the rest of my life. Mm. But then, the second person came up to me and pretty much said the same thing a month afterwards. And then a, a third guy that I really respected said the same thing. And, 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 I began to like, okay, uh, the earth and the moon and the stars are lining up to tell me something. Here. Right. Right. There's this serendipity or whatever you want to call it. There's just, this, this mm-hmm. something that's happening. It's just kind of telling me to do something. Mm-hmm. And, and I've been very instinctive in my life that whatever that is, I have to listen to it, mm. you know, either I have to research it, either I have to kind of surrender to it or whatever it is. Uh, and that's exactly what I did. So I, I, I basically told my family and my, my friends, I said, I'm kind of, I, I think I want to go to Indonesia and just kind of check it out, what this voice is telling me to do uh kind of like those disney movies where they always say if you don't know what to do just take the next step you know of the mm. next best thing or the right thing that you need to do right so my decision was i bought a i bought a a one way ticket to indonesia now you have to understand i haven't seen indonesia since i was a little boy mm. and i had no friends no no family i had to literally search my for my dad again when i get into indonesia cuz we lost contact for those many years and um but i i followed and i listened and i obeyed and uh i just told my family that give me a year uh i think i'm i want to give it a try i was 22 again i had nothing to lose you know mm, if, if mm. it didn't work if i didn't sure. find what i was looking for i could always go back i was you know i was handing the car keys to to my sister in america i said keep it you know, all my stuff, my comic book collection, can you keep it? Save it for me until I get back. And uh, I went to Indonesia on that journey just to, just to see what that mm. voice was telling me. And May 1st, 1995. So this is like my twenty. this month is my 25th uh, anniversary of stepping into Jakarta for the first time since I was a little boy.
0: Yeah, I was interested in what aligned for you once you physically got to... Jakarta said because I think Did someone say to you Go and check it out Or did you decide to do that for yourself I mean rather than buy a one way ticket And decide this has got to be God I can't go back What was your frame of mind in going I'll check it out
1: Yeah it was, it was more Me hey. being 22 uh, yeah. uh, You know I think if, it, if I was 37 I don't think I would have done it but since yep, I was two, there you go. uh it was it was the age w- played a big factor of it of I you know, I got nothing to lose. Uh that if, if it didn't work out I could always go back to my comfortable life of mm-hmm. going to Target and Costco and, and being in America. But right. yeah, it was it was more of that um because I hear people I mean these were not just strangers, but people that I really respected and, and, and admired and that, that spoke into my life. So I said, um, yeah, I kind of want to just check it out. And, and it didn't work out like in the beginning. I mean, you know, I, I enrolled myself in a, in a Bible school in Jakarta, Indonesia. It was a very tiny Bible school in Indonesia. And, 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 but right from the beginning, God just kind of uh, 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 placed me to meet different people in my life, which mm. are now the people that, that, uh, I am with in, in building our church in JP. Yes. Wow. So it was just one of those things that, that, uh, over time, I remember the first year came and went and I decided, you know what? I'm, I'm okay. I mean, financially mm. horrible. I remember I only mm. had like thousand dollars in my pocket for like a whole year. Right. You know, uh, But I think, and and this is what I always teach people. How do you know it's from the Lord? Number one, I had peace. It wasn't Mm -hmm. something that I was forced. It wasn't something that I was like, oh God, I'm so miserable, but Mm -hmm. but let's do this. But it was more like, I absolutely genuinely had peace that, oh, this is all right. Even the floods were taking all my possessions, you know, money-wise, it was kind of terrible. Uh, it wasn't kind of it was very terrible during that time but I had that peace beyond understanding that I just simply couldn't explain to people mm. that I just knew that this is this is this is it this is what i'm supposed this is where I'm supposed to be mm. and and again I think it's because I'm very instinctive in the way I do things creatively or or the way I run my life so I decided just to stick with it and uh and when I met all these people from, from Jeffrey and, and, you know, my bandmates and all these people, it it was as if the stars were lining up, you know, and if, if like for better expression. I think
0: that's a good response because I think in all the things that people say are essential to the guidance process, I think that sense of peace that is, that is consistent, that doesn't budge is the most reliable way I think of you know, making decisions at crossroads. And I think because people uh, cannot understand an individual's sense of intuitive peace, they often feel you made a wrong move and try to right. convince you it was wrong. But your overwhelming sense of consistent peace ultimately becomes your go-to place for, as you said, knowing it's kind of God or not God for my life. I think of all the things that the enemy can counterfeit he can't counterfeit that piece that you have he can fool right. you by a lot of dodgy external stuff but that in, in a piece I think is absolutely right you mentioned Sid a moment ago and I, I just while it's come up and you mentioned I wrote it down about your comics <laughs> yeah tell us about that because people I think will be surprised to know about your passion and interest in comics since early in your life right
1: Well, what people don't know about me was that I was, I was actually, I went to school uh, pursuing art, not music. Uh, I was, I had a, I received a scholarship back in high school for my art, for illustration and painting uh, Mm -hmm. from Walt Disney Company. And I was one of the 12 students that was chosen in Los Angeles County uh, to receive the scholarship. So all throughout all throughout my teenage years, all the way until uh, I left for Indonesia, I was I was heavily invested in my visual arts, which which was mm. painting, comics, and and illustration. It was one of my one of my dreams was actually to become a comic artist, comic pencil. Wow. Uh, mm. and, and that's just something that that I've loved even before I moved to America. Since I was a little boy. I remember reading Spider-Man comics or Thor or X-Men when I was a kid and it just stayed with me until now I'm I'm 47 and still love it, you know, wow. but yeah, it's, it's because of those uh, backgrounds of being in the, in the illustration and visual arts. I love that. I yeah. love
0: that. How do you, how do you sum up what you do now, Sid? How do you describe what you do if you're talking to a stranger on a plane? Because I find this quite yeah. a challenge with people. So what do you do? I've found a short way to answer it, and when I answer it in a short way, I leave it then as to whether or not they want to take it further. In this country, my go-to response when I didn't want to get in conversation about what I did was to tell them I work in the church, which is a killer for conversation across Europe, as you know. In America, if you mention you work in the church, they feel like you're a public servant and start telling you their problems, but... (laughs) But for you, what you do is quite layered now. So how do you answer what you do?
1: So when people ask me, especially now in the season of my life where I'm more uh, creating and producing and writing, I just tell them that I make make songs for churches of our nation uh, and hopefully for the region of Asia as well. Uh, Yeah, I mean... I think that would be the easiest way to to tell people I make sounds and melodies and, and, uh, and songs for churches to sing. Um, but yeah, I think, it, but, but if they, if, if that's not what they're interested in, usually I would just say I'm a producer. I'm a, I'm a music producer and, uh, and a songwriter, which is kind of like the easiest way to say it.
0: And your approach to your creative process, Sid, because I know you also have an entrepreneurial side to you and have businesses that you're interested in and so on throughout the years. Um, Is your creative process, like how do you start creatively? Are you always on in your head a bit like me in terms of scouting for ideas or things that inspire you that you write write down and then you go and dig into it deeper? Especially in the lockdown, I guess that creative process has been able to shrink down a bit, condensed every day now because you're doing nothing else.
1: Right, right. Uh, uh, for me as i said uh the way i run my life has been very intuitive instinctive so i was not uh, taught the basics and the fundamental of music everything i know about music and producing mm. and writing is pretty much self-taught and self-research right so so um i am like i said i love research i, I because music is my passion I'm always, I'm always searching for new songs for new sounds. Um, so my go-to is, especially nowadays is always YouTube. I'm, I'm constantly on YouTube, just scouring different, different things that, you know, what other people are doing around the world. Yeah. Uh, not just the mainstream music. A lot of the things that, that songs that I play to people, they 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 always ask me this question, how do you, how do you get to know these music? I mean, where'd you find these, you know, because uh, they call me like the king of unheard of music, because I always have this playlist of indie bands or indie singers, singers, songwriters that nobody have heard of, but I, I found them and, and they're absolutely fantastic. So that's the kind of person I am uh, in terms of what inspires me and what, what sparks my interest in music. And, um, and another thing is I just I just keep learning. Mm-hmm. I, I'm i on YouTube most of the time is for the tutorials. I learn a lot about sounds and, and, and designing sounds and mixing and things like that. And, and at the age of 47, I still learn something new every single day. So...
0: I think I read a book years ago called Steal Like an Artist. Um, and the idea being that we should all be stealing from each other. And going back through through history, especially studying the masters, Picasso and Renoir and so on, Picasso famously spoke about it. he stole from everybody. Oh, yeah. And the diff- the difference between stealing and copying being that copying is kind of just karaoke version of what it is that you picked up. But stealing is that you, you're you inspired by others, and then you put your own unique take on it. Absolutely. So you are, you are influenced rather than you are imitating. And I think what you just said there, Sid, of your influence from the indie world and so on. I was going to ask you too, what are some of your sort of go-to bands in your playlists that you love listening to regularly? What Any particular bands that you're drawn to? Sounds?
1: I'm, I'm, I've am i always, I mean, for me, you too have always been the kind of. Yeah, I love you too. And that, uh, you know, I checked off my bucket list that uh, my wife, my wife surprised me with uh, Two U2 tickets to see them in in Singapore last year. Uh, and, uh, uh, I've I've always thought I would never see them because I've heard that they refused to play in Indonesia for so many years now. And, uh, okay. Yeah, and uh, because of the human rights issues and things like that. Mm, mm. But uh, and then and then my wife says, well, you know, we're gonna go see U2, and I was like, literally in tears last year during that concert, wow. and just watching it. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you ask me if there's a band, because I remember. As early as year four in my elementary school, I had this little notebook that had u two uh as as the cover. It was one of those cheap uh. notebooks and it was u two and i've I've passionately have listened to them since I was i guess what seven that must be like forty thirty nine years ago so it's it's yeah melodically uh philosophically uh lyrically. I think Bono is a genius. So, um, and I always ask people, uh, you know, especially if, if they come from Europe, any one of you knows Bono? Cause if somebody can connect me to the right direction to speak with Bono, that would be, that would be a, a tick on my bucket list. Oh, that's um, amazing. Yeah. Very cool.
0: Let me ask you a couple of things that I don't take much more of your time regarding church. Any, any observations, concerns, Um, hopes for the emerging generation of the church? Do you feel that there are particular challenges they are facing and are going to face that perhaps my generation or even yours didn't um, in in good or in challenging ways in terms of what you do, what you see in the emerging generation, how they're wired, how they think?
1: I was a part of, uh, there was this uh, in an American institution called the Barna Group. Yes, the Barna Group, yeah, yeah. And uh, they were doing research about, you know, of course, as what we're talking about, the generations. Mm. And they came to Jakarta in January, I think either January or uh, early February, and uh, had a talk with them. And during our conversation, they said something that just kind of stuck with me until today. And uh, they said that from their research, from their interviews uh, and polls, they've they found that back in the day, in the past, uh, the older generation believed that truth is objective, but good is subjective. That's in the past. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the emerging generation believe it's actually the opposite now, that truth can be subjective, but the moral good is always absolute. What what they're saying is that they found this generation b- believe more in the kindness of people, more in that the truth that all these pastors or churches kept on saying. So from what I gathered from that conversation was that I think this is the generation where the church should live out what they preach and speak and sing, especially as as a songwriter. Uh, uh, every time, you know, the the younger generation come up to me and said, I'm, I'm making an album. Do you have any, do you have any tips or tricks or what's, what's your big advice for me? And I always tell them, you have to live what you sing. You have to live mm-hmm. what you sing or you have to live what you write. And I think this is the challenge for today's um, right. churches that the age of you know, the holier than thou kind of generation where we look and act the part, but don't live the part is no longer. Mm-hmm. You know, that we look like a pastor, we talk like a pastor, we preach like a pastor, but we don't mm-hmm. live like one. Mm-hmm. And and I think that was an eye opening thing for me and, and something that is instinctively I've been doing in the last 30 years in my ministry, mm-hmm. that I, I couldn't care less about About what people think about me as Mm. you know or or my titles or or whether people consider me as a as a pastor or not. Those things are so irrelevant for me, but I'm more about how is my life doing is what I'm saying and what I'm singing reflecting my life Mm. and uh, yeah I think that's the biggest challenge because for the older generation, especially now. And we're seeing it now in this, during this whole lockdown and pandemic where everyone has to go online. Everyone has to right. go online. In the past right. two months, I've seen churches struggling, you know, to, to appear right. uh, uh, as a pastor, speaking to a camera, speaking to people, and they don't right. have that luxury of being in that church anymore. And right. and the thing, the thing with our generation is they can see authenticity from a mile off, right. you know, whether whether you are actually living uh, what you're saying, what you're preaching. And, and I think that's a, such a big challenge uh, from the last generation to the next generation.
0: I felt for a long time that the Western church is buildings and campus centric. And so when we don't have buildings and campuses anymore, we don't quite know what to do because our definition of words like attendance and community and engagement And involvement and volunteering are all attached to a campus and a building and a property somewhere rather than to a community rather than to a community. And so I do wonder whether or not when this is all over, one of the opportunities that we have in the West is to redefine and repurpose our properties and our campuses more towards community rather than towards Sundays. Right. Um, Because I do think a lot of people who have never, ever thought they could possibly engage through online, have discovered they can and they prefer it. Right. And that that genie may never go back in the lamp in terms of people going back to an attachment to a property, and to a Sunday service. And I wonder whether or not that's been thought ahead by people who are just thinking, "Be great when we get back to normal." I'm not sure that we're going to get back to that version of normal. Don't you think?
1: Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely. And I've been I've been telling people this that what we considered as normal is no more. This is right. This this is a, an emerging normal. This is a very different kind of normal, especially uh, for a, an institution like the church. What we've done in our church for the past 20 years have, uh, because our leadership is o- always not about the Sunday service, which I think right. was done right and correctly right from the beginning. Yes. That yeah. We were not interested in just making a church on Sundays, but we're, were interested in building a generation. That was our mission statement right from the beginning was that to build a generation of, uh, of stars with the message of truth. That was right from the beginning of our church, JPCC. Yes. So yes. It was the, 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 the goal was always building people. It was never about building a, a, a service. Absolutely. When we started 20 years ago back in 1999, there was only 50 of us, 60 of us, and it has grown yes. to tremendous numbers in the past 20 years. But what we've done successfully was that we built our church based on community. We Mm -hmm. have, I think, one of the largest, if not the largest, in terms of small groups in churches uh, Mm -hmm. uh, in in our nation. Um, And and because we've had several seasons in our church where back in 2001, we had a a bombing. Uh, This was when our church was about, I think, about 5,000 or 6,000 people. We had a bombing uh, uh, of the Australian embassy right next to our campus, right next to our uh, venue. And, and it forced us to really rely on small groups because yeah. there was a chance, there was a, a possibility during that time that we couldn't meet on Sundays. Right. And yet during that time, our community, our, our, our small groups were so strong that right. we realized that we, we would be okay. Even if we don't meet on Sundays, we'd still be okay. Now, fast forward Mm. to 2020 when Mm. uh, the the government says, okay, no more large gatherings. We're like, cool, let's just switch it and uh, go straight online because we've been doing it in the past two years anyway. And Mm. uh, I remember we started our online service, putting it on YouTube because of a fire. There was a fire that happened in one of our campus in in Upper Room, and uh, it forced Yeah, you remember that, and and it forced yep. our Sunday service on that campus to close down for I think for a good four five months, wow. and we decided, okay, well you know what, why don't we just start the online service and see if it works? So we've we've started that two years ago. So when it comes time to to isolation and quarantine, we're like, okay, cool, just switch it back on and uh, and let's just go with that. And now every week I have, I have people in, in our small groups that were sending pictures that they would do, they would go to, they would watch their online service in, in the zoom, like, just like here, they would share the screen and with, with all their small group members, uh, in zoom, watching it together, sharing notes. And I thought that's it. You know, like we, we have nothing to worry about as a church because the community is still there, you know, even if we don't meet on Sundays.
0: Right, so. very cool. I think I've always loved that amongst the many things I love about your church. I think that sense of growing people rather than things would be my way of saying it, why I teach around the world. I think you guys have captured that so well ever since I've come to you guys, that sense of investing in people and that sense of having this fluid relationship with a building and a campus, I didn't. I wasn't aware of the history that's contributed to that, but it makes so much sense now, which to me gives the Eastern Church the edge over um, the Western Church that is very attached to buildings. At this time, right. the way that you've quickly diversified into online, no big deal, um, is not what I'm finding in the West. Many pastors in the West are panicking that they're trying to f- pay for these buildings um, and they're hoping people will come back to these buildings. What do we do with these buildings? And everything becomes about sustaining a property and paying for a mortgage and paying for a campus, wondering now whether or not there's ever going to be a way to continue to finance that if the people don't come back in the way that they were there in the first place. And I think there's a lot of game-changing, serendipitous things going to happen that I'm framing as a positive thing. I'm sure many are not framing it as that. Um, Sid, let me ask you uh, just finally a couple of things. Um, hobbies, sure. interests. I know the comic. I know the comics and things. But what are your what lights you up as a person? Because you were very. Whenever I've been with you, you strike me as a very happy person. You're very conversational. You're very interested in other people, and you've consistently kept that. Which I think in ministry, in what we have done in ministry, and I've pastored for thirty years. I think keeping that happy, outgoing, interesting persona is not easy. So you must have been intentional about it. With other things other than church yeah.
1: roles. Right. So I, uh, people always ask me this. That, that how, how, how do you not burn out even yeah. after all these years and, 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 and still have this positive energy and outlook yeah. in life? So I remember, I think, in the early years of JPCC, I was hosting a, a pastor just like you because I always host you whenever mm-hmm. you're around. Sure, um, yes. And I remember I was I was in the car with him, and he was an older gentleman. Uh, he was already in the ministry for a long time. And I asked him, "Hey, what's what's your, if there's any advice, how would you tell somebody who is young in the ministry like me, to to be to have that longevity uh, in in terms of ministry?" And I remember he said something that it's it's stuck with me uh, throughout the years, which kind of made me who I am today. He said get a hobby that is so different than your ministry and keep it.
0: Hmm.
1: Right. And, and, you know, I was, I was waiting for a verse. I was waiting for, for, right. you know, like pray for five hours a day, yeah. you know, read the Bible six times a year. Of you course. Know. But, but he said, get a hobby that is so different than ministry because he was asking me, he's like, so what do you do? I mean, the music ministry so is find something that interests you that has nothing to do with music. Right. I was like, but that's counterproductive of what I've always thought right. about, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and then he asked me, so what, do you, what is it that you want to do that you haven't been able to do because of, quote, unquote, your ministry? And I said, I think playing games. I, I love playing video games, but for some reason, I always have this guilty feeling that if I play video games, right, I'm right. not uh, uh, <laughs> being a man of the ministry. You know what I yes. mean? Sure. And he said, no, 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 no. Keep doing that. Go find a game that you love and just play whenever you have time. Uh, oh. it, even if you don't have time, find the time to play your games, your mm. video games. And and I remember that just changed, you know, everything that I thought about about ministry. Cool.
0: Yeah.
1: And and from that moment on, I'm I'm like literally. You, you, I have from Xbox, PS, all the Playstations. Now I'm I'm playing my Nintendo Switch. I Play my games whenever possible um, because it lights me up I mean, and, and has nothing to do with church, nothing to do with praise and worship, nothing to do with all these Christian songs. I just want to play Star Wars or I just want to play some Japanese RPG and I'm happy. And this is something that I've always taught our team, you know, that, that I think uh, find something that that, you know, it it lights you up whatever that is it could be cooking it could be it could be playing bowling whatever it is that is so different than what you do as ministry because i think for for the longest time we've always been taught you know oh you know if you want to be in the ministry you gotta you gotta submerge yourself into right whatever it is that you do and and forget everything uh you know i remember posting me playing a, a video game one time on Instagram many years ago. And somebody literally put a comment and it's like, wow, can pastors play video games? Wow. I, because that's the the mindset that a lot of us are, are, uh, are being taught. So if you ask me, those, those are some of the, the things. That's very cool. Watching movies. I think,
0: yeah, I love that too. I think one of the reasons I didn't find it difficult to step away from pastoring after 30 years was that I knew my, Identity was not attached to it, right? Um, and I think a lot of people in ministry struggle to transition to some other expression of life, right? Um, because they're over-identified with a role and a job and a title, rather than uh, being a, being attached to their fundamental skill and calling, yeah. which could serve in multiple ways. Yeah. And I think what you just described of having this, of seeing what you do as what you do but your identity isn't completely tied up with that because you are good at a range of things um, that you could transfer which you have into other expressions of creativity absolutely um, what are you working on at the moment Sid what are you working on now future projects coming up and so on
1: well project mm-hmm. is always on uh, because I'm, I'm the creative pastor of our church JPCC and uh, I oversee the JPCC worship and all the productions of it so sure. we're, we're writing songs. We're, we're still coming up. I'm, I'm in the middle of producing the children's EP and also the youth EP that's coming cool. out. So, But at the moment, I think the way we do music is different as well. The way we listen to music is different than, than what we always used to. Back in the day, we, we mm. had to listen to albums. We have to go to a, a music store, buy the CD or the cassette right. if you're old right. enough. And uh go home and start listening to it. But nowadays it's everything is on our phone and we don't usually listen to full albums anymore. Right. You know, we just pick and choose and make our own playlist. That's <laughs> the emerging generation. We make what we love, we make our own playlist. And your playlist yes. is different than my playlist. Yes. And and so the way we produce things are different as well. Um, nowadays I'm I'm not really concerned about strategic Strategic marketing and the timing of when to release. If we have a song, release it straight away on Spotify. Okay, interesting. So, uh, we just wrote something about a couple weeks back, produced it. And I think by next week, it's already going to be out on the on Spotify. So, wow, yeah. Yeah, everything is changing. Everything is changing. So nowadays, it's, uh, if it's timely, release it. And uh, even if it's just a single, we don't have to wait like for a full album so yeah so we do have yeah, a lot I, on our plate right now
0: constantly. I like that that's very true um Sid how can uh, our listeners find you and track with what you do
1: well um I'm pretty much active on the Instagram it's under at Sid Mohiri uh on my Instagram and also on YouTube I have a YouTube channel uh but I do have a Twitter uh Facebook and all that but usually it's just kind of uh tangent with my, with my, uh, Instagram.
0: You have a massive social media following. Um, do you like, do you enjoy that? Do you like that? What, how much of your day does that take up social media?
1: (laughs) Frankly, I really couldn't care less about my social media. That's the funny thing about me. I think I'm not, uh, I remember my son came up to me one time. This was many years ago. He said, dad, did you know that you have 1 million followers on Twitter? I'm like, <laughs> really? I had no clue. Like, I had a million people on my Twitter. I'm like, 1 million? And then when I saw it, I was like, and then he's like, that is the best thing, Dad. And, then, and I remember I told him, that, hey, you know what? I this right now, and I, and I wouldn't regret it.
0: He's yeah. like, why,
1: Dad? Because for me, this is not the most thing. And, yeah, and it's it's just a lesson for the next generation because that's what the next generation wants. It's their number one uh, goal is to be famous. That's like the number one thing that right. uh, you know the the emerging generation wants. So yes. um, I know I have a lot of uh, uh, people follow me on social media, mm. but I don't care much about it. And and. But I, I am very intentional in my social media. I'm very intentional in the way I interact with people and what I post. So that's something that I, I am very much aware of. Um, that I don't post a lot. Actually, I'm not. I'm not a very. Uh, I don't plan my story very well, mm. but, um, but I'm very intentional about it. That. that uh inspire or influence or encourage i don't think i will post anything so yeah
0: interesting well listen i want to thank you for your time that you've given me today and uh just say again that you're my favorite people uh Uh, in the world uh, and certainly in the church world and i think you are are a genius (laughs) i think you are a creative genius and you are a joy to be around as a person which is not always true of creative geniuses but you are both of those things and i appreciate that about you you're a beautiful family and i love your church to bits and of course jeffrey and the team there you guys are legends can't wait to spend some time with you again i was due to be with you in june of course but we'll have to reschedule all that i hope for some time maybe next year Thank you for taking the time to listen to Paul Scanlon's podcast channel. We just wanted to remind you about the free course that's available to you on the five behaviors of successful people. So go and head over to paulscanlon.com forward slash free course to sign up for that today. And please do subscribe, share and review this podcast channel.